Welcome to the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Nico Triolzi, the co-founder and CTO of AE Dreams, the makers of Turtle Mail, which is a product for children, a wooden mailbox with a printer inside. We'll talk with Nico about the hardware and software details of the product and how Turtle Mail was designed and how it's manufactured. Enjoy the show. Hi, Nico. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, we want to get into a lot of detail about the hardware and software in the Turtle Mail product shortly. But first, can you give us a real quick, maybe 60-second overall description of what Turtle Mail is? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Turtle Mail is a mailbox for children. It's, uh, it's a physical device. It has a thermal printer on the inside that is connected to Wi-Fi. So what that means is uh, family members and friends can send messages to kids from their mobile device or computer, and kids receive everything as little bits of printed mail. Friends and family will use our, our web app that you know can be accessed from any device with a browser, and uh, they can send pictures, they can send uh, text messages. Uh, we're working on a couple other features where they can uh, sign kids up for activity content so they can get word games and puzzles, and uh, we'll be rolling those new features out uh, probably next year. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a screenless device. Kids uh, don't interact with the screen, um, and all they, they just get little bits of printed mail from their loved ones. Well, uh, let's talk about the hardware. So yeah. you, you kind of describe uh, some of the promotional material, kind of describes the product as a Wi-Fi connected wooden mailbox with a printer inside. What's in, what's in the mailbox besides the printer? So the printer is connected to a control board. It, it's a, it, it comes with a printer. Uh, but the control board, uh, basically, it takes uh, just serial data and converts it to the line matrix that the printer prints out. And then that, that controller board is connected to our, our Wi-Fi board. And that's pretty much it. And yeah, just it needs to be plugged into power and it's pretty much ready to go. Um, you just got to set it up with your Wi-Fi. Nico, how is the box put together? It, it has a piece on it that's familiar to me and would probably be familiar to folks who've used laser cutters and similar digital fabrication, it looks like the top of it, the cover, is what we'd call a living hinge. And uh, I'm wondering how you you make the mailboxes themselves, um, where you make them, and and what what the design inspiration for it is. The uh, the shape and the design was inspired from, you know, a mailbox and a turtle. Um, We kind of combined the two, so it's like a there's a little head on the turtle, and it's got little uh, little feet. Um, the exterior is entirely wooden. Um, the balls that make up the head and the feet are are, are wooden knobs that we paint um, in in the painted version. There isn't there is a pure wood version, um, but yes, it is a living hinge that we uh, we we cut finger joints into the the wood, and then it it bends over the side pieces that have all the little grooves so the fingers fit in, and then we glue everywhere. Um, so yeah, we do, we use laser cutters out of, uh, we work out of tech shop in Bakery Square in Pittsburgh. It's a gym membership style workshop where you pay a membership and get access to laser cutters and a wood shop and CNC machines and we got all kinds of things here. But we, uh, we work pretty much out of here every day. Um, I'm actually there right now because they have, uh, conference room spaces that you can rent and computers that you can use and they've, they've really, yeah, uh, they really helped us uh, ma- be able to manufacture this or the exterior parts all on our own. So we, yeah, we do all the exterior work here. On the inside, there is a plastic enclosure for the device 
that is injection molded, and then the uh, the custom board that we have gets manufactured at a uh, a, a local uh, PCB maker called Dynamic Manufacturing. Let's talk a little bit about that injection molded part. Where where is that part made? We are uh, working with a company called Proto Labs. They have a really good uh, sort of web application that you're able to submit uh, a design to, and then they'll their system will run through and analyze your model to help you with uh, to help you refine it for injection molding. And uh, they do they do a lot of quick turnaround. Um, so all, all of our injection molded parts are actually made um, there. I think they're in Montana, I believe. They're they're, they're here in the states. So. Your manufacturing is happening in the U.S. a little bit in tech shop right there in Pittsburgh, but also in a few other places uh, around. Now, this may be a naive question, but while we're talking about the injection molded part, why not 3D printed for that part? Uh, it was uh, it's, uh, it's time and uh, accuracy. So we we did use tech shop has uh, a bunch of 3D printers that we did use for prototyping. So that we can get the feel and the size of it, but some of these 3D printers, um, especially the, uh, the the plastic ones, they sometimes you know their their resolution isn't great, and things can can shift when they're printing, and sometimes you have to you know go in and and refine, like you gotta like sand it down and stuff. So um, we we we're working in a volume right now that uh, we need we need something a little bit faster. And we wanted something that we could then scale up to, 3D printing. I know there are, there are shops that are working on making that a a viable solution, but I mean, they're running like hundreds of machines out of a warehouse, but uh, we need we need quantities in the thousands. Well, Nico, on the, on the subject of prototyping, can you yeah. talk about kind of like the evolution of the final product design where there are lots of iterations? Yeah, so the actual the first iteration was cardboard. It was uh we went out and bought a standard uh little box. Uh we painted it green and we cut a little uh door in it for kids and we we uh we, we tested the idea by by putting mail like little slips of paper in there already and, and we would tell kids, "Oh, you received mail." And then they get excited and they'd open it up and while they were looking at their mail, we would slip new mail into the box and we'd be, "Oh, I think you received more mail and they'd get excited and, mm-hmm. and open the box again. And then we we actually, so the wooden exterior was part of the prototyping phase. We initially, we thought we were going to go to plastic because most toys are made out of plastic and that's how you, that's how pretty much everybody scales up is, you know, you use plastic because they can, each part can be made in a matter of seconds with the right machinery. But when we started putting the wooden ones in front of families, they started reacting to the wooden and commenting on it and really liking it. And they liked the feel of it. It, it gave the parents a sort of a nostalgic sense. Like uh, there are a lot of parents who, you know, remember playing with wooden toys when they were kids. And mm-hmm. so they felt good to let their kids play with something that they could they understand, you know, what the raw material is. Um, and so we, we made we made a choice um, before we moved into um you know the next the next stage of prototyping that we were going to go with wood as and take it as far as we could. Um, it, we were cautioned a little bit. You know, scaling up with wood is a bit difficult, um, and it has been. Laser cutting has as takes up the majority of the manufacturing time. We can do other things while things are laser cutting because we're sitting by the machines and assembling parts at the same time. But I think ultimately we will maybe not be. We'll be moving away from laser cutting them, but we won't be moving away from wood. 
uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a few different methods to steam bed wood so that, uh, so that we can get that curvature without having to laser cut the living hinge into it. As much as I like the living hinge, it's the, the, t the time it takes to cut it is, uh, it really, it really starts to add up. Yeah, Nico, kind of stepping back, um, how did the, how did this idea come to you? Were, were you doing something even remotely similar previously? Uh, no, not quite. I was actually studying art, or not studying. I was practicing architecture. I, I went to I went to college at Carnegie Mellon, and um, I, w I was I was working as an architect. And my my partner uh, Alicia, she was in she was at CMU currently um, uh, studying business and design. And as a class project, she was it was an entrepreneurial class. She came up with the idea to to look into kids' toys. Um, we we had recently found out that we were uh, we were pregnant, and so um, the the idea of you know what what kind of toys could we design, um, knowing what technology could do, uh, was was really interesting to us. We had seen um, a lot of toys that we were kind of disenchanted with. A, a lot of the stuff we saw were things that were designed for adults and then dumbed down for kids. We saw a lot of plastic phones, a lot of you know tablets with rubber edges around them things that you know we, we understood where they're coming from um but we wanted a toy for our child that was designed for children that had technology in it and the idea of having uh, having it be screenless was kind of a, a challenge we put on ourselves our daughter from a very young age um you know she was fascinated by screens and and you could you could tell even you know at one she she was mimicking things we were doing. She saw us, you know, swiping on our phones. Um, so she, we would see her swipe her hand across it just to get a reaction out of it. And I think, I think technology's reached an age where it's very intuitive. So, so more to answer your question, the way the idea came about in this class, uh, Alicia developed about 20 ideas and I helped her do some of the, the visual mocking up. I used my architecture skills to, uh, to do some visualization and, it was really the idea of the physical toy that could do a little bit more than just a physical object that was interested that they were interested in, and we had an idea for a physical toy that when you played with it when you did things with it, it would send you a reward, a reward in the form of a piece of mail that would arrive a few weeks later, and you would collect these little bits of mail on a board, kind of like a um, a trophy wall, like a list of achievements that you would that you would um, you would get, and then we the idea of mail started resonating with parents and they, they started uh, really liking the idea of their kid receiving mail. Um, and we heard a few stories about um, kids that had grown up where their parents had written them mail and the kids wow. had loved receiving actual them. Actual letter writing, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and they were, they were, they would write them when they were away at work or um, out, out of the country. And so the, these kids, these adults now, they wanted that, that experience for their kids. Um, we kind of combined a couple different ideas and came up with turtle mail. And as, as soon as we started putting it in front of people, it, it was an idea that clicked really quickly. And, and so after she graduated, we developed the, the idea a little bit more at CMU's incubator called Project Olympus. And, and then we pitched the idea to a local accelerator here in Pittsburgh called uh, Alpha Lab Gear. And we were accepted to their program. It's a nine-month program uh, that comes with uh, $50,000 of funding. And it, it really helped us, you know, refine our, our business idea and, and, and really build our company. 
Nico, let's let's kind of uh, talk about what uh, both parties, the sender and the recipient, are experiencing, f- starting with the sender. So um, someone who has, a, a, say, a niece or a nephew in another state that they want to send messages to, what, what are they doing? Is it is it just an app that they type a message into, basically? Uh, yes, there's... There's two type of sender accounts um, that you that you sign up to on our on our web app. One of them is the the parent account. It's the it's the account that you can you can send messages to. You can um, you can send pictures through it, but it also gives you control of the device. It lets you say when it prints um, because we have a lot of uh, people who have family members that are you know in other countries, so the time zones are different. So we didn't want people sending messages at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, so you can you can tell it when to print, so it'll stock up everything over the day and then print it all out at once. And then the other type of account is just a sort of a, a friend account, is I think what we're calling it, where the parent would send an invitation uh, via email to this person. They would accept it in their email, go through our, our sign-up process, and they would be able to send messages to the recipient's turtle mail. Um, they don't have control of the device. Um, it's just a way for them to send messages, and they would access that through their computer or their mobile device, through through a browser. You, you would just go to our, our, our website and log in. Thanks. So how does the child interact with with it, uh, do, do they wait for email to arrive? Uh, is there something on on Turtle Mail that they get to manipulate, uh, you know, otherwise interact with, or is it is it mainly that they're waiting for messages to come in and you know they get those? It's ma- it's mainly they're 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 waiting for messages to be received. We do talk to people about how um, it's an opportunity to set up uh, like a schedule with a kid and teach them patience, knowing that, you know, the mail is received at a certain at a certain hour so that they can anticipate that and, and learn, you know, it, it helps kids with uh, learning, you know, when a certain time happens, this is, this is turtle mail time or something like that. But um, um, we have had a few kids that have, that have played with the device itself it's not really uh like a like a toy to be played with because it, it does it's it's a little bit heavy and um you know, it has a, a roll of paper inside of it that can't be shaken up too much but um we have had kids decorate it so we the wood this pure wooden version we kind of encourage people to either paint them or to put stickers on them and kind of make it their own we've had a lot of kids who have wanted to personalize their mailboxes because it, it's it's something that they really enjoy doing is is really making it their own. How big is the mailbox? Uh, It's about uh, six or seven inches tall, and uh, the base is about four inches by four inches. Where do things stand now with manufacturing distribution? After you got that first, was it 50,000 that you said you you got from the accelerator? Yes. What else was necessary after that? So after Alpha Lab Gear, um, we were some follow-on funding from a fund uh, that Carnegie Mellon manages called the, the Open Field Entrepreneurial Fund, uh, the OFEF. It, uh, we were able to raise a, a match for it and, and they award, um, $100 to, uh, alumni and, um, they take a, a little bit of, uh, equity, but we've been working with that many ever since. And, uh, we've been, we have a line of credit also that we've been using to, uh, to build up our inventory so that, uh, we're, we're aiming, you know, to be operating off of revenue. But um, the ramp up is, uh, is is tough without the initial capital. But but uh, we're making it work with the funding that we have. So Nico, you're you're ramping up to scaling up production 
right now, right? And so what do you see as kind of your next big inflection point in that where perhaps you might have to start thinking about your own dedicated facility outside of tech shop or even changing the way that you make your PCBs and your injection molded pieces? Do you see that happening in the next year? Do you see that happening in the next few years? And you know, where where does that happen? Uh, where do you think that happens? It's sort of a question for you, but also anybody thinking about going from prototyping to manufacturing without jumping up to enormous large runs right off the bat. So our our initial production run is a thousand units, and we are looking to streamline a lot of the procedures um, for uh, manufacturing and assembly. We are looking for uh, partners that can help us. Um, you know, put everything together, paint wood, um, do assembly. Um, I think the, the PCB manufacturer that we have now is able to, to scale up to, um, to pretty much any level we need. Um, so I think we're, we're good on that level. It's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's more the wooden stuff that we need to figure out how that gets manufactured in larger quantities because it is, um, it'll, it is the more time consuming part. We really like working out of tech shop. I don't think we'll ever, outgrow working here. I think we will we'll definitely stop manufacturing turtle males here at some point when we're able to find those partnerships with um with uh larger larger manufacturers. But I believe we'll we'll probably still use Tech Shop as a sort of development area. They're, they're the access to the kind of machinery we have here is is something that would take a huge amount of capital to to recreate anywhere else. So I could see us developing more ideas and more products here um, while sending the bulk of the manufacturing off to, to other companies. So another question that's on my mind, partially because there's no seeming end to the news stories that provoke these sorts of questions, there's been a lot of concerns raised about Internet of Things security and especially compromised devices being used as botnets to create den- distributed denial of service attacks and, and other attacks. What are your concerns uh, around IoT security for your device and, and what what's your thinking as far as strategies for keeping your device resilient against these sorts of attacks? Uh, so we, we do have a security consultant out of Duquesne University. He, uh, he heard about us early on and he volunteered to, to help with any um, sort of ideas that we might want to bounce off of him. And so he's been, he, he, he keeps us up to date on some of the, um, the, you know, the problems that are happening out in the world and how to, how to prevent, um, some of the problems that, that other companies have run into. Yeah. We've been very aware of security issues, uh, very early on. We're parents ourselves and we've heard of, you know, stuff like VTech, uh, leaking some information about children and, and other companies that, um, they've just had little tiny holes that, you know, never got thought of. So, um, what we, what we try to do is keep as little information about the children as possible. Um, we actually ask for nicknames rather than their actual names. We use a lot of um, access tokens in our in our ac- activation uh, phases. So there's there's a lot of uh, codes and encryptions that are required to even have the device connect to our servers. So we're you know we're trying to add as many layers of security without. It becoming different for people to actually uh, set up their devices. As far as security with the device itself and, you know, what kids are able to receive, we're, we're trying to give parents as much 
control over the device as possible. They will be able to create whitelists and blacklists depending on how they want to screen who is able to send messages to their kids. And what about the security of the code that you're writing that runs on the device protection against uh, you know, common exploits like a buffer overflow, you know, some sort of remote attack that allows somebody to inject some malicious code? You know, or even the vulnerability of some of the components that you might be using in in the device. Have you thought about how that might affect your firmware update strategy? Do you push updates out automatically? Uh, will you be doing testing uh, against the device to see what types of vulnerabilities it might we, be susceptible to? Yeah, we we do we do have we do have a method for pushing updates. The Wi-Fi board we're using is an Atmel device, and there, I know there are a few security measures that they, they've already generated that you can add to your software that I believe those have been implemented. The fact that you're able to push out firmware updates is a really, really, really big thing that's really important, and it's great that that capability is in there. So many devices rely on the user to initiate firmware updates. For example, many Wi-Fi routers uh, won't automatically update unless the user initiates it. That's that's been changing, but there's still so many devices on the market out there that don't don't have those facilities automated. Yeah, yeah. Our, our process for updating right now is is when we do push one out, we we are able to um, inform the parent to reset their device. Um, that way, the uh, the device can go back into its sort of bootloader mode. That that then request the most recent software. So, Nika, what kind of reaction are you getting to the product so far as far as, you know, from potential customers? Uh, the reaction's been pretty good. We've been taking, um, we've been taking pre-orders, but now, now we're, now we're shipping, um, yeah, we're shipping out devices. Um, I think we actually, we had a mention on the Today Show, um, yeah. a few weeks ago, um, because we were, we are selling a few of them through Neiman Marcus. And so they'll be they'll be carrying a few of them in their stores. Um, I think I think we're we're either we've already hit or we're about to approach our um, uh, the end of this production run. But we will still be taking orders for next production run, which should be shipping sometime in February of, of next year. Thanks, Nico. And if listeners want to learn more about you and Turtle Mail, where should they go? Uh, they can go to our website. Uh, it's aedreams.com. The, the yeah, the company's name is the letters A and E, and then just dreams. And so aedreams.com is the website. Okay, great, Nico. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, well, this is our last hardware podcast of 2016, and we're very happy to kind of wrap up the year with a visit from the guy who created the hardware podcast and was the host and co-host uh, of the show from from its very beginning up until this past summer. So we all thought it would be great to catch up with John Bruner and find out what he's been up to. And uh, John, welcome back. Hey, good to see you guys. Good to be back. This this feels very natural, and I hope that for the yeah for the for the listeners. Uh, my voice is is a familiar throwback to like the you know last spring. Also, you're, it's a nice nice introduction. Almost almost sounds like an an obituary. Like John, has, you know, <laughs> moved on and, and still and we wanted to capture your voice one last time. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm still still with O'Reilly, working on something slightly different. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Let's let's talk about that. Um, tell us about what you've been working on, and uh, particularly the like the real cool event that you put together and co-hosted last October, O'Reilly Bot Day. Yeah. So I'm I'm spending a lot of time these days focused on AI in general, and uh, in particular a few applications for artificial intelligence. Uh, so for for those of you who haven't been following it, there's been just tremendous progress in artificial intelligence uh, over the last couple of years. Computing's getting cheaper, so it's easier to apply it. There's been progress at a fundamental level in in a lot of the algorithms and and techniques. And then um, it's become easier to start developing stuff with AI because the toolkits have been getting better. And here the big deal is this uh, framework that Google released about a year ago called TensorFlow that's um, a framework for for deep learning. So a lot of people have been getting into that. uh, And you see deep learning and, and other kinds of AI getting applied all over the place. So particularly, I've been uh, interested in bots. And to listeners of the hardware podcast, this will sound like robots. Uh, but the bots that I've been looking at are actually chat bots. They're, they're completely software bots. But there is some kind of a tie, right? Well, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of interest in um, AI as a way to make machines in general interact with humans more compellingly. And and you'll see that with a lot of uh, hardware robots. I think they'll be greatly improved by all of this progress in artificial intelligence. For the moment, the ones that I'm, I'm looking at are, are strictly software. The idea here is that, you know, not only has AI improved, as I just said, but also it turns out, and I was totally unaware of this until I started looking at it like six months ago, no one downloads mobile apps anymore. It's, it's the, the mobile app ecosystem has really stagnated. So everyone is worried about this, and they notice that although no one downloads mobile apps anymore, people do love to spend their time in mobile chat applications like WeChat and WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. So, uh, you know, th- these bots are an attempt to kind of reach people where they want to be. So rather than, you know, creating a new, uh, let's say, hotel booking app, which no one's ever going to download. Instead, you create a hotel booking bot that talks to people in Facebook Messenger where they're spending hours every day anyway. Now, there is a place just last week where it looks like hardware and AI and bots might be getting together. Amazon recently announced that they'd be offering FPGA hardware in the cloud and attached to an EC2 instance. And the folks I've talked to, nobody's certain what applications people are going to use it for. And maybe Amazon doesn't know either. But one thing that keeps coming up in speculation is hardware accelerated machine learning. Interesting. Um, and, and similarly, Google is working on something called the TPU, the TensorFlow Processing Unit, which is a specialized uh, piece of hardware for running TensorFlow. A lot of listeners are probably aware that GPUs are popular for deep learning applications because they involve a lot of parallelism. But you can optimize it further and come up with really, really specialized hardware, not just specialized for deep learning, but specialized for like certain applications within deep learning. So I'm working on all of that stuff, but I've promised that I will return to the hardware podcast periodically and contribute stuff as it comes up that I find interesting because there will be a lot of really good stuff at the intersection between sort of AI and hardware that, that will 
you'll see here. So I'll, I'll join you guys all the time and uh, and talk about that. We're looking forward to that. We welcome you back anytime. So, <laughs> and you're working on another O'Reilly podcast. Oh, yeah. So we've got the O'Reilly Bots podcast, uh, which is very exciting. Um, similar to what we did with the hardware podcast, my co-host Pete Skamarak and I go through and talk with you know a different person every episode who's doing something interesting in the field of bots. So it's a pretty broad podcast. We talk with people about bots specifically, as well as a lot of general AI stuff. I think the AI is is where we're going to really dig in um, in 2017. So if you want to know what bots are, you can go listen to episode one of that podcast where Pete and I just talk about what bots are and then, uh, you know, listen forward from there. And there are episodes that are more about bots and episodes that are more about AI. But I think it's a really interesting field. I was a skeptic at first. And um, I'm very clear about that in the early episodes of the of the bots podcast, no. but I've I've uh, I've kind of come around to it. In, in fact, I've I've definitely come around to it. I think there's a lot of promise there. I'm still a skeptic about a lot of things, and I'm among all the people who have bot related podcasts and write about bots. I'm probably one of the more skeptical ones, but I feel a lot better about it than I did uh, a few months ago. Let's also update our listeners on what's happening with another very familiar voice on this podcast, the uh, who you heard as the co-host until this past summer, uh, David Craner, and uh, I understand he's been doing a lot of work in China over the last six months, right, John? Yeah, Jeff, he's uh, he spent a lot of the summer in China working on a really, really cool project uh, related to the Olympics. And I'll let him come on the program and, and discuss that. He's traveling again this fall, so it'll take a few weeks to get him back on the program and giving us a rundown of his projects recently. But they are really, really cool. You guys are going to be very excited to to hear about them. Anyway, David is alive and well. For anyone who is worried about not hearing his voice, not hearing his click spirals, David's good. And uh, and we'll, we'll hear from him soon on this program. Well, John, so glad you can join Brian and I here. It's been great talking to you again. And uh, thanks thanks for coming by. And please, please join us as often as you can in 2017. Yeah, it's great to be back. And uh, apologies to the listeners for disappearing without notice over the summer. I uh, got uh, the scent of a new thing and, and kind of wandered off. But this program is in good hands with Jeff and Brian. It's great to be back, though, and I'll be back more in 2017. Thanks, John. And, and once again, everybody, be sure to uh, check out the O'Reilly Bots podcast hosted by John and Pete Skamarak. And uh, for more information on that, you can go to O'Reilly.com slash bots. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn so you'll never miss an episode. And you can visit us at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. For the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast, I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Blyall. Blyall.